Wow, got quiet on its own. Does that mean we're all ready for nap time? <laughs> Welcome. As you get seated, let me encourage you to find a Bible, uh, either on your device or one that you brought, or uh, a black hardcover, which is in the seat front somewhere around you. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, feel free to take that one as our gift to you. As uh, one of our elders says, uh, our middle name is Bible, Village Bible Church, so we want you to have uh, one of those. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Village, and uh, my privilege to um, follow all that cuteness this morning and ruin it. Uh, <laughs> but we are in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1, so somewhere near the middle-ish of your Bible after... Ezra and Nehemiah, and before Job and Psalms, the book of Esther, in uh, a series that we are calling Seeing God's Sovereign Hand, When He Seems Unseen. Pastor Ron introduced us to this book last week. If you are not here, there's two ways you can catch up on that. You can, well, there's more than two ways, but you can listen to the audio version on our website or subscribe to our podcast, or you can go on the Facebook page and watch last week's um, message as well. But we want to dive into this difficult, weird, sometimes avoided book of the Bible. How many of you have done a group study or been in a sermon series on the book of Esther? Okay. Good. That's maybe half-ish of us. All right. Um, And uh, we have just a a lot of of good stuff to cover over the next nine to ten weeks as we get through the book of Esther. But today I want you to think, even before we read the passage, I want you to think about the word notice. The word notice. I want us to notice what is going on in the text today. So we're going to read 22 verses of Esther chapter 1, and I want us to be noticing. Now, uh, that's your job all the time. That's our job as we listen to uh, teaching and preaching. We need to be noticing. We need to be actively engaged. But because, as Pastor Ron talked about last week, the name God, the name Yahweh, the name Lord is not mentioned once in all of the book of Esther, we need to pay a little extra attention to what's happening in this book because that's not normal. We're not used to that. And so that's what I want to challenge all of us to do this morning Uh, Please follow along in the book of Esther. I'm going to read all of chapter 1, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to see what the Lord has for us. Esther chapter 1. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkos, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshanah, Shathar, Admathah, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsanah, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king as Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will, have, will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Father, we sure need your help to figure out what to do with that. So we thank you that you have given us the helper, uh, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one who uh, helps illuminate your word to not only our minds, but to our hearts, and who helps us figure out how to apply it with our hands. So Lord, we're asking that you would help us to understand Esther chapter 1, not so that we can pronounce long lists of names or so that we know some more facts, help us to, to remember those facts, but help us to figure out what you have for us, your people, here 2,500 years later. Lord, we, we know that your word is, is strong, it's unbreakable, it's powerful, it is good, and it is also a sword. So slice today, Lord. Do some heart surgery on us. In Jesus' name, amen. In your notes, you'll see at the very top that I included uh, Pastor Ron's 
introductory themes and main idea from last week so that can help us as we move on into the text. But uh, on the top of your notes, you'll see those themes that Pastor Ron laid out for us. And this is um, through something that I would encourage everybody to do this week is sit down, sit down, not in the car, it doesn't count, okay? I'm excluding that. Sit down and read all of Esther from start to finish without stopping. It won't take you very long. Um, Even if you're a slow reader, it won't take you very long. Um, Read the whole thing all the way through. Pay attention to the story, to the themes, to the repetition, to what is going on, and you will be much better equipped to study this book as we continue to go. But also because it's a really fun story. Um, It is a really good story. Um, It's well written. It is uh, placed um, in uh, such a way as to get us to laugh, as to get us to boo and to hiss, as some of you were helpful with um, last week. Uh, It is part of a Jewish festival that is still celebrated to this day every spring. And so I would encourage you all to do that. Just quickly, Pastor Ron's uh, themes that he laid out last week, what we want to be on the lookout for is that God's sovereignty is over everything. God's sovereignty is over everything. Everything includes what? All things. Very good. Number two, God's protection of his people. We want to watch for God's protection of his people and of the future Messiah's line. Uh, last, we want, not last, the third, we want to look at human responsibility. Look at how humans are held responsible, how they make real decisions that have real consequences, and notice that we are to obey and take action for God. And number four, we'll see a lot of this in chapter one, the folly of wickedness. The folly of wickedness. This is what we want to be on the lookout for. And then that main idea, that main idea in the text, even when you can't see God's work, which is important because we don't see the name of God appear in this entire story. Even when you can't see God's work, trust him because he always sovereignly acts in care for his people and the progression of his plan. That's what we need to be paying attention for as we go through uh, this book of Esther. Now, I told you I want you to notice things. I want you to pay attention and see what is said, how it's said, how it is repeated what is emphasized here in Esther chapter 1. And as we go in, the first thing in your notes there is just a reminder to notice especially the hiddenness and silence of God in the Old Testament storyline. So as we zoom back out for a minute, I want you to see that this is a theme that that does appear many times in the Old Testament. Uh, Joshua talked to us a little bit about it before Uh, in the service about God's silence, God's hiddenness. And we just want to take a brief look. I I tried to figure out how to summarize this myself, but I basically couldn't do it because the author that I was reading did it so well. So I'm going to read an extended portion of a commentator's note on walking through the whole storyline of the Bible and seeing where God shows up and how he shows up or not. So as you think through the story of the Bible, this is really important because where are we in Esther? Well, you still got a lot of room left in your Bible in the Old Testament, right? But after Esther, we've got Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, right? And we have poetry. We have songs. They're not necessarily moving the story along all that much as far as the narrative of the Old Testament. 
There's a little bit of that in some of the prophets, but most of the prophets write in poetry and are reflecting prophecies about the current state of things or the future state of things or reflecting on the past state of things for the children of Israel. And it's important to know that as we get to Esther, we are at the last book of narrative as the Old Testament moves. Okay? So we've gone through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. We've gone through um, all of these books. And now we get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And those are the close of the story of the Old Testament. Now, Nehemiah chronologically happens a little bit after Esther. But it's important to note that Esther is the last book of narrative. So as we look back on the story of the Old Testament, it's really important to note what God has done. So listen to this. The story of the Bible begins with God's intimate presence with Adam and Eve in the garden. Think of the wording. God walked with them. That presence very quickly in chapter 3 is broken by sin and then they are exiled from the garden. They are exiled from the special intimate presence of God and God's presence with his people is never the same. Think about how God speaks to Noah, how he comes down to deal closely with the builders of the Tower of Babel. Think about how God shows up to Abraham in a little bit more hidden way. The first time that God speaks to Abraham, it seems to be um, either straight to his mind, in straight mind-to-mind, some kind of uh, communication, or a voice from heaven that does not appear in anything physical around. And then very quickly after that, in a vision in which God shows himself to Abraham. When we get to Moses and the freed people of Israel, there's been hundreds of years of very little presence of God made known to their people. In fact, the the people of Israel are crying out, God, where are you? Rescue us, deliver us. When the children of Israel and Moses get into the wilderness, God shows up in miraculous ways to get them there, right? The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and then immediately God shows up visibly in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to lead his people. When they get to Mount Sinai, God shows up in the weather. On the top of Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and down the mountain to speak to God face to face. And the reason he does that is because the first time that God speaks, God speaks to all the people and they're freaked out. Which, by the way, is a good way to respond when God speaks. And they say, Moses, you do the talking because we'd like to live. We'd like to stay alive. You go talk to God and you tell us what God says and, and we'll communicate that way through a mediator, through an intermediary. God does miracles seemingly every day, right? With the manna that shows up every day, breakfast right outside your tent. When Israel enters the promised land through a, a river that is crossed on dry land once again, the miraculous manna stops. The cloud and the fire go away. And from that point on, miracles are only sporadic. So in the taking of the land, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? That's a pretty cool miracle. But the rest of the fighting is done traditionally, like with a sword and a spear. Okay? The, the, the miracles become sporadic. They happen a few times in a generation, and sometimes it seems for generations there are no miracles. So when you get to the story of 1 Samuel... Second Samuel, there are few miracles at the beginning of First Samuel. By the time we get to the end of Second Samuel, there are very few miracles happening. 
And Samuel is the last person to whom God is said to have been revealed. As the story moves on. Solomon is the last person to whom God is said to have appeared to. Elijah is the last person through whom God does a public miracle. Think about the difference there. Think about the the public miracle done on a mountain in front of thousands of people as compared to an axe head floating in a river, which is amazing, but there's only a few dozen people. The public miracles begin to cease. About a hundred years later, King Hezekiah experiences the last miracle recorded in the Old Testament. And later in that story, a few chapters later, we see the last time that an angel acts on the earth. Now, the angels show up in the rest of the Old Testament, but they're in dreams and visions, usually to the prophets. By the time we get to the prophet Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar has already marched into Jerusalem once. He's going to come again. He has carried away many of the people of Judah. And Ezekiel is shown in a vision God's glory lifting up in the cloud from the temple and leaving. It's not hard to see what's going on there. God's presence is departing from the very place he told the people to meet with him. Because of their sin, God not only exiles the people, in one sense God exiles his presence from his people. And so the Babylonians continue the conquering and the exile of the Jewish people. When we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, the children of Israel are coming back to the land that they were kicked out of, and there are no miracles. Uh, there's no direct word from God for his people. And when we finally get to Esther, literally as you're going through your Bible, when you open to Esther, there is no mention of God at all. Not even once. So this is not, boom, out of nowhere. This has actually been a pattern throughout the Old Testament. And now we get to Esther and there is no mention of God. And of course, as we look in our, the story of the Bible, this leads into the 400 so-called silent years. In between the Old and New Testament, what we often call the intertestamental period, there's no word from God. There's a hope from the Jewish people that someday maybe God will speak to us. Maybe he'll send another prophet. 400 years, no prophets, no voice from the Lord, contested possible miracles, never uh, affirmed by God in any explicit way. And who breaks the silence? What breaks the silence? John the Baptist. A miracle baby. From Zechariah and Elizabeth. Two people too old to have a baby, which sounds a lot like the Old Testament. And there, he's announced, his coming is announced by an angel. Whoa! <laughs> What's going on here? All of a sudden, a cluster of miracles, a cluster of God speaking. And what is John's message when he grows up? Repent, the king is coming. And in, and in Jesus, we have Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence back amongst his people. Lots of words from the Lord. Lots of miracles. The climax of the story. In all of this, don't forget how long God's people had to wait. And if we're going to have an application before we get to the end, this is it. Just because God's not speaking does not mean God's not working. And we know that because of history, right? So listen, your experience matters. Your experience is really, really small. It's a tiny sample size, right? I mean, some of you in this room are on the older side of the spectrum. You've been around for several more decades. 
That's not a long time. I'm teaching world history right now. That was a long time ago. The 1930s, that wasn't that long ago. So if God is silent for 400 years, how many people lived and died never hearing from the Lord? Your experience is true and is real and it matters, but your experience must be tempered by the word of God that God miraculously has preserved for us so that it sits on your lap right now. It's on your phone. We can trust God because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. Just because he hasn't answered a prayer that you've prayed for three months or 30 years does not mean God's not working. We have the whole Bible to show us that this is true. And so that is a necessary prologue for us in understanding Esther chapter 1. Now as we look at Esther chapter 1, we see the first nine verses deal with three feasts. I want you to notice this. Three feasts. And there's a lot more feasts to come in the book of Esther. Lots of feasting happening. So notice verses 1 through 9 of the book of Esther. We're introduced to Ahasuerus, also known by his Greek name Xerxes who Pastor Ron introduced us to last week, who is the king of the Persian Empire, destroyed the Babylonian Empire, and now has set up the, the largest empire in the world. I want just to give you some background information. As we look at the first nine verses, you see details. Um, different kinds of flooring, <laughs> different kinds of pillars, different kinds of capitals, different kinds of uh, armies and ranks and officers and officials and servants and feasting, and drinking, and curtains. All of these things are given to us. Why? To show us how immensely powerful Ahasuerus is. He is the king of kings, and lord of lords, as far as anyone non-Jewish is concerned. He rules the whole world. Here's a picture of Ahasuerus, um, Xerxes, um, this is him when he was the crown prince to his dad, Darius. Uh, he is next to the throne. He is preparing to serve, and he has not shaved in a while. The next uh, picture will show you a map just of how large the Persian Empire was. It stretched from modern-day Pakistan and India all the way down into uh, what's now southern Egypt, um, all the way over into Greece. In fact, if you look at a globe, this next picture will show you how far his territory stretched over the globe. This man ruled a vast swath of the world. Most of the known world at the time. Most of the world that mattered at the time. Now, that's big. That's huge. That's zooming way out. Now, if we zoom in, what helps us understand this as more than just a story? Ooh, this is fun. I like Esther. Romance and daring and courage. It's all here. But what else is here is not just any story. Once upon a time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That is not what's happening here. What's happening here is now in the days of a hazardous. This is history. This is real. This is true. Notice, we know where this happened. You can, well, you can't really go because it's in Iran. But you can pretend to go through these pictures, uh, to modern-day Iran and to the fortress, the citadel of Susa. It, it's so well-preserved. Now, for those of you that haven't been to um, an archaeological site in a while, 
it's kind of like disappointing, right? You're like, where are the pillars? Where are the roofs? Where are, well, because it was a few years ago. Everything fell down. Um, people came in and conquered. But what we do have is we have the floor plans. We have the layouts. We know where this happened. Even just looking at this picture shows you we're not making this stuff up. And we can go and walk among the ruins and see where these things happened. Jeremiah, go to the next picture, please. There's some walls. There's some floor plan. Obviously, it's kind of hard to picture, but go uh, to the next picture for us. And you can begin to see even details of what's mentioned in Esther chapter 1, as far as the king's court, the gardens, um, where the pillars were, where things were being, where the feast happened where the, the noblemen were paraded through in front of the king. Go to the next picture. Whoa, hey, there's some blocks on the floor. What's that? Well, the next one helps us with some color. This is where the throne of Ahasuerus would have been. Okay, it would have been positioned right there on that yellow stone in the middle, surrounded by massive pillars, of course, to show how great this king was. As you look through the story and as you read, Porphyry and mother of pearl and marble and all these things. Go to the next picture, Jeremiah. We know what the place looked like because we've dug it up. Okay, there's a garden, which the Persians were well known for their gardens, which the Babylonians probably felt a little gypped, but the Persians stole it from the Babylonians. Hanging gardens, right? That kind of thing. But um, all of their palaces were surrounded by gardens, um, beautiful gardens with trees and plants and herbs taken from all over the kingdom to show this is mine. A hazardous is the great ruler. The next picture just gives you another idea of some more of where the throne room would have been, the king's quarters, where the courtyard would have been, where people would have come before the king. Um, as we read about the pillars and what's, what, what's there, um, there's an artist rendering in the next picture that shows um, very likely what it would have looked like because one of the other palaces that Ahasuerus had um, in Persepolis is much better... Uh, preserved for us. And so the, the beauty, the intricacy of the carving, the colors that were put and placed on uh, the, the hangings, the curtains, would have looked something like this. When we hear of these, these massive pillars and rods and couches and precious stones, go to the next picture, Jeremiah. This is one of the bases of one of the pillars. That man is six foot three, and he's laying on the base of one of the pillars. Now, how many of you have pillars in your house or on your patio. Anybody have any pillars? Anybody? A few of you have some pillars. I'm going to guess they're not like this. <laughs> in fact, show the next picture. <laughs> uh, here's part of the column that they have um, dug up. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell the picture, but that picture, that's on what that guy was just laying on. Okay, that is a massive pillar. Here's what would have been at the top of the pillar. Now, these horses... Two, two-headed horses, kind of hard to tell here. Two-headed horses that would have been beautiful and colorful and placed on top of those pillars and look something like this. This is a miniature to show you what it would have looked like. They would have been um, drinking, feasting, presenting themselves in there with pillars that were upwards of about 70 to 80 feet tall. Much taller than this roof in the place that we're in. What were they drinking out of? Well, they didn't just have little plastic cups, okay, they had things very much similar to these kinds of drinks. In fact, um, they have cups that are different. Just kind of scroll through there and stop on the uh, second to last one. All right. Um, this one right here has uh, a hazardous dad, his name Darius, 
on the cup in three different languages. Um, we actually know that his name is on here. Very well could have been used um, in one of the palaces of the Persian kings. Go to the next picture. How would you like that for a cup? Next time you have guests and visitors. Oh, they like bowls, okay. Um, but there is there's these gold hammered, beautifully done cups. What, does this, what, what is this about? This is about the glory of Persia. This is about the glory of Ahasuerus. This is about the power of Ahasuerus. This is about the wealth of Ahasuerus. What kind of man is he? Well, we know from history that at this time he's about 35 years old, which is a great age, if I do say so myself. Um, he also was said by Herodotus, the Greek uh, historian, that he exceptionally handsome and of good stature. He was a well-built man in his prime, and he is the king of the world. Why is he in Susa? Because Susa is the winter home of the uh, Persian Empire because it was nice and warm. It's the Florida of the Middle East. And so uh, in the winter, the king would have been in Susa, the administrative center of his capital. The whole point here is to show how great King Ahasuerus is. When we meet this man, we're expecting a great leader of men, a warrior, a king, a noble person. However, he has a little bit of a problem in verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. After 180 days of partying, partying, by the way, it wasn't like everyone came to the party for 180 days. It probably meant that people from all over the empire made their way to Susa. And so you'd have delegations of people from Babylon, from Egypt, from Lydia, from all over the world. And they would march before the king and show themselves to the king, probably giving him gifts, showing themselves to be his subjects. And after this, what happens is Ahasuerus wants to show the people in the city who've probably been working their tails off for all this partying, he wants to give them their after party, okay? So the after party is seven days of just a ton of drinking, okay? And the Persians were famous for their ability to drink alcohol. The Greeks commented on how amazing they were at drinking. Um, One of their historians said, moreover, it is their custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk, And what they approve in their councils is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house where they deliberate when they are now sober. And if being sober, they still approve of it, they act thereon. But if not, they cast it aside. And when they have taken counsel about a matter when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. (laughs) Ahasuerus, the great man, has a drinking problem. Now in verses 10 through 12, we get the great refusal because in verse 9, we had this side the side comment that Queen Vashti was having a women's party in another part of the palace. She is having her own party with the noble women. And uh, on the last day of the party, on day seven, the seven eunuchs who are the servants of the Most High Ahasuerus, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. It's a very nice Hebrew way of saying he had a little bit too much to drink. And by a little bit, we mean a lot. And so he calls for those eunuchs and he in his great wisdom, in his great might and power and pomp, he sends them to Queen Vashti and says, get her over here. I want to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. Now that word is the same exact word used in verse 4 
when Ahasuerus wants to show the peoples of his empire the riches of his royal glory. I think that's done on purpose. Here is all my stuff, and here's another thing that I own. This woman, who's very beautiful. And so immediately, we can see what Ahasuerus thinks of Vashti. She apparently is very beautiful. She's lovely to look at. And so the king, sauced up as he is with all of the men in the man cave, he calls a palace, invites Queen Vashti to come over. And there's all kinds of debate. Many of you have likely heard over the years that she was invited over with no clothes on. That is a Jewish tradition. It very well might be the case, but notice what the text does and does not say. It just says she's beautiful and he wants to show her off. Okay, why does he want to show her off? Because he's the king. Because he's the king of the whole world. And he wants to say, I'm the king of the world and I have the most beautiful woman in the world. Here's my queen. Look at her. Isn't she great? Wow, aren't I great? That's what's happening here in this picture. She's to come with her crown or her headdress on. Uh, Whatever the case is, it is pretty clear from the context that the drunken king does not have a good motive for bringing his wife into the room. Okay, I think we can at minimum say that. That as she comes into the room, she is like the king's plaything that he wants to show off. She is the toy that he would like to show off. And she says, no. Now, to us, that's a duh moment, right? No, she's not going to go in there. You put yourself in this place, ladies, your husband, your husband, okay, this is all hypothetical, is in the man cave, in the garage with all the guys, and there's been a little bit too much alcohol going around, and he calls for you to come into the man cave because you're so beautiful. You're not going, are you? You're not paying attention to that summons. But that's because you're an American woman, and because you're an individualist, and because you have the power and the equality to do such a thing. Vashti did not. This is not a, I'm not going in there. This is, if I don't go in there, I might be dead kind of decision, okay? This is what Vashti has to think. She has to think, I am not a mere concubine. I don't get to be flaunted around. I will not do this, no matter what. Well, in the end, the king is enraged. The king is angry because his plaything, his beautiful woman, will not appear before him. I think Vashti is a hero for doing this. I think that Vashti is shown in a good light here. She is shown to refuse the king in, in, in a place where the king of kings, the lord of lords of the whole world, should not lose his mind to drink and ask his wife to come in. She refuses to go along with it. And Hazarus, the king of the world, who with his pomp and his glory looks like a drunk, pompous, vain fool. And we're meant to laugh because it's just silly. The king doesn't act like this. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, said hundreds of years ago, he that had rule over 127 provinces had no rule over his own spirit. And what comes in the last 10 verses is basically 
a bunch of men getting together, probably still under the influence of alcohol, trying to figure out how to respond to a woman who dared stand up to the king. It's actually really uh, sadly funny as all these men, these great warriors, these men who probably are getting ready to go fight the Greeks in the coming years. Uh, the famous 300 battle is about to happen between the Persians and the Greeks. This is probably a, a big party to get psyched up to go fight the Greeks. Okay. In all of this, these great manly men with their spears and their swords and their muscles and their might, they can't figure out what to do about this one woman who won't do what they want them want her to do. And that's what this turns into. This turns into a council of buffoons trying to figure this out. Okay, there's seven princes. They're the council of the king. And they all get together and they're like, well, guys, what are we going to do? And this great king over 127 provinces from southern Pakistan to Kush to Greece doesn't have his own house in order. Right? That's, that's the picture here. And so what do they do? Well, they come together and one of the council members says, you know what? Cool, man, if the queen does this, the women of the empire are going to rebel. There's going to be an uprising. How do we control the women? Now, again, you can't think about this as an American woman. Okay? You can't think about this as an American woman. You must think about this um, in the sense that in those days, and in the Persian Empire in particular, women were property. Women were mainly around to give birth, and especially to those of noble status, to give many women, to give birth to many children, so that the man, would, the, man the king, would look mighty and virile and strong. Look at all my offspring. And so, in this context, the men are afraid. They have all the power in the world. And they are afraid because one woman said, no. So Xerxes fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known as this. Never make decisions about affairs of state when your heart is merry with wine. He makes a very bad decision as a drunk man. By the way, he did get in involved in a land war in Asia too, okay? as well as Europe. It went badly for him. But this shows us what happens when a bunch of people, no matter if they're male or female, get together and all have what we call groupthink. We all just kind of affirm each other. Yeah, it's a great idea. Why we say it's a great idea? Because you want to be part of the great idea, and so you affirm that it is a great idea, whether or not it is a great idea. And so all these drunk men come up with this. Well, what should happen? King, oh king, that can't make a decision about what to do with his wife who needs seven men around him to huddle up and think, oh, what do we do? What do we do? I don't know. What do we do? This is what they do. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Ha! Ah, she can't come up here anymore. Ha! Ah, we're so smart. Yeah, we are. We're smart, guys. She's not allowed to come in here anymore. You can't come in here anymore. Wow, what a great law. Can you imagine Congress coming together? You know what? Today we've passed a great law. The First Lady may no longer enter the White House. It took all the congressmen and senators in, in Washington, D.C. to make that law? That's the idea here. They, they did all this stuff to come up with a law so that Vashti couldn't come in the king's presence anymore. Isn't he the king of the world? Have anybody ever heard of, you know, off with her head? Right? Why, why didn't this work out? Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This is a huge masculine conspiracy to control the wives and women of the empire. And verse 21, undoubtedly this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. The king is a puppet. Okay, that's a great idea. I'll do that. That's all that the king can muster here. And so he sends letters out to all the provinces, to every province, in its own script, to every people, in its own language. This huge undertaking where horses would go up to 250 miles a day and like the old Pony Express, is that much older, pass off the the letter to the next horse and go all the way to the ends of the empire probably within a week and a half, which at, at that point was an amazing thing. And every person in the whole empire, this huge undertaking heard, guess what? Vashti can't come before the king anymore. And also, men... You should be master of your own household, okay? Yeah, all right, good. Glad we went through all that. Look at verse 22. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, that last phrase is a little interesting. We're not sure exactly what to do with that. Some translations go different places with it. But essentially, it basically means, hey, you speak the language in the house that the man wants to speak. Okay? But the intermarriage with um, all these things going on. It's, it's this really pro-man mandate, huh. pro-mandate, um, that the men of the empire need to stand up with their king and say no to women saying no. That's where this ends. This is the irreversible law of the Medes and Persians. And it's all meant to be a little bit silly. And it sweeps away the stage for the rest of the story. Because now we have an opening. We have a job opening. Queen. However, the king has to go off and fight. And so there's going to be a job opening where the king is queenless. Now he's not spouseless. Okay? He has a harem of many women for his own pleasure and for his offspring. But he's probably sooner or later going to need a queen to step into that role. And so we get to the end of the chapter and we say, okay, so what do we do here? <laughs> uh, what, what is the call here? Is the call for all the men in Village Bible Church to be rulers in your own household? Ah! <laughs> no, that's not the application. <laughs> now the application is that men, you should be, they're all leaving. <laughs> what a horrible application. I'm not done. <laughs> the, the application here is that, men, you should be Christ-like sacrificial leaders in your homes. Like Jesus, not like a Hazarus. Like the true king of kings, not this fool. The other thing we see is the importance of having people in your life that can speak into your life that aren't just yes men and yes women. Do you have people in your life that are trustworthy? Or do you just have, are you surrounded by flatterers? Because that kind of feels good. Remember Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Will suffer harm. Write it down. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Something else we got to think about. What role does celebrity following play in our lives? Who holds the power in our world? Politicians, athletes, movie stars, social media influencers, whatever that means. Authors, if you're nerdy enough. The celebrities that we fawn over, that we follow on Instagram and Facebook and whatever other social media platform, 
We get their autographs. We buy their books. We go to watch their movies just because they're in. Let's be very careful about the people we put on the pedestals in our life. Let's be really careful about wanting to ingratiate ourselves to the great and powerful and mighty, the rich and the famous. The ones that the world says are very important people are often not the people that God says are very important people. In fact, look around this building. As a part of this church, these are the very important people in your life. We are VIPs because God has brought us together to care for one another. It's also really important for us to see what Vashti does and to take her her example as an example that we may need in our jobs, in our country. Our, our brothers and sisters around the world do this. They sacrifice their freedoms and their status for the sake of doing what is right. Vashti was deposed. She was exiled. This was not a happy thing for her. She didn't tweet about it afterwards. She was placed in a place where she could no longer be influential. She was no longer the queen. Unless we are being required to violate God's law or our own conscience, we should obey the state and those authorities over us. But when we are required to disobey, we must obey God rather than man and be willing to suffer the consequences. We don't obey God rather than man and then whine about the consequences. We accept the consequences just like Peter and John did, just like Paul did, just like Jesus did, just like those in China right now who are being silenced in prison are. We suffer the consequences because to suffer alongside of Jesus is a blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And let's remember as we get to the end of this story that we have a much better king than this. Our king does not treat his subjects like this. Our king took his crown off, came down to this earth, sacrificed himself for his bride, not sacrificed his bride for himself, so that he might cleanse her and wash her and bring her to himself, pure and undefiled. And that's us. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of seeing Zach up here with his parents. Lord, thank you for the joy of being a part of this church, a congregation that is committed to the word of God and to prayer. I think even of those who are watching us right now on the live stream, who can't be here with us today, who are um, suffering, um, who are sick, um, who are out of town. Lord, we thank you for the community that you have brought to this church. God, as we go to classes now, as we um, go to lunch together, uh, Lord, help us to encourage one another as long as it is still called today. We thank you for the book of Esther. Lord, we want to know you better through this mysterious book, through this book where you are hidden and seemingly silent. Help us to learn much from this book that we might apply to our own lives. And God, go with us this week, as we may be called, to represent you in a risky way in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. Lord, go with us. Help us to be bold in you because you are trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen.